There is truth in everything, but not everything is true. There are some things in this world that are a matter of opinion, and yet others are a matter of life and death. Every generation feels that they have an advantage of new perspective, a new path, a new truth. And yet history shows us that unless it is in alignment with the eternal moral values, all new redefinitions of the truth are doomed to fail. It's Saturday, April 24, 2021, and as usual, we're taking a look at the top stories this week that demand your attention, beginning with the U.S. hitting a vaccination wall, Biden's ambitious climate pledge, and then the racial and police tensions here in the U.S. We then talk about the dilemma of euthanasia, as Chile considers it. And finally, we dive into the story of Alexei Navalny and why it matters. Welcome to Lifering, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what's going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by my co-pilots, Vadim and Paul. How are you guys? Hello. Hey, hey. How's your week? I've been waiting seven days. It's been awesome. I mean, in Washington, we rarely get days in April where it's 70 and sunny outside. And right. this week, we had some of those days, and it's just seems like everyone was out and about. Everyone got over their seasonal depression. So it was definitely a good time to be alive. Yeah, it came with good timing because my sister was visiting with her family from Ohio. And so we uh, got to spend time together in beautiful Washington weather. Not only is it sunny, but also you got to, you get to see all the, all the trees going green now. So the scene is reshaping, like it gets more greener, it gets more pretty out there. There was a ton of people in parks this week. And then downtown because of the tulips, right? So we have the, I think they're world famous, at least nationally famous tulips. Yeah. If you're not from Mount Vernon, those tulips are overrated. Just, just be ready to get disappointed if you do go. Well, be kind to yourself. You know, it's like the Eiffel Tower. If you're not living next to it or Space Needle for that matter, there's nothing special about it. It's only when you're like from who knows where you want to come and yep. see it. Anyways, so, um, well, if you're one of our newcomers to the show, welcome. We hope you will find the product of our labor informative, educational, and possibly inter- entertaining. If you are enjoying the podcast, please share it with your friend. That one friend that you just spoke with last week, uh, let him know about this podcast. Uh, we thank you for spending the time with us. Let's go. All right, before we begin, I, I want to do a little intro. You know, we are unique in a sense that we have Slavic roots. We mentioned it on the show that, you know, we ourselves are intimately familiar with the Soviet history and the lengths to which it went to create a perfect society. There, among the major enemies of the state were Christians. And because they didn't believe or more correctly knew that there couldn't be a perfect society without God, they were persecuted, shamed at best, and at worst, brutally murdered and tortured. They were fined, uh, arrested, violated, their families broken apart, and the government subjected them to torture in hopes of, well, as they said, to recondition them or rehabilitate them, all because they didn't think the way the party wanted them to. Now, they didn't really attempt to change the system like the people themselves, the Christians. They didn't revolt against the government. They just simply expressed their faith in the daily life. And they were willing to undergo suffering at great length in defending you know, their personal faith. So now it's been you know twenty something years since the fall of Soviet Union, and our parents are now here in the United States, and increasingly they notice the same signs of this totalitarian regime slowly taking over the country, and we see it as well as do many of the conservative Christian citizens of this great country, and that's why we started Lifering Podcast in hopes that this conversation about what's going on in the world will keep our attention on the most important developments in this country and the world as a whole. And so one of the topics that we keep revisiting this, uh, you know, every week is the topic of COVID. It's an ongoing pandemic. Uh, It's still here. And under the cover of this viral contagion, people across the globe lost their freedoms over the course of last year. And the government is not hurrying to give them, you know, to give it back the freedoms. And the line between what's effective, what's essential, what's urgent, and what's infringing on human rights and freedoms became blurred. So by Monday... In the United States, uh, half of the population of adults have been given at least one dose of vaccine. They say about 30% were fully vaccinated. And I'm mentioning those numbers, you'll see why in a second. Uh, So countries like 
uh, Chile, UK, Israel are well ahead of us in terms of vaccination. Biden's deadline of opening up eligibility for all adults has been met. It was April 19th, this Monday. And so up until Monday, we were getting 3.2 million doses a day. As of Thursday, it turns out we had about 60 million unused vaccines in the national supply. So now five days in a row, We've been getting lower than 3 million doses that, you know, we're so far getting. And according to Associated Press, uh, Louisiana actually has stopped asking the federal government for its full allotment of COVID-19 vaccine. Also, about three quarters of Kansas counties have turned down new shipments of the vaccine, at least once over the past month. And in Mississippi, officials asked the federal government to ship vials in smaller packages so they didn't so they don't go to waste. So the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is not on pause anymore. And they lifted the, you know, the pause that was put in there. It was an emergency act, I guess, because of the, some blood clotting cases that came up. Yeah, I would think, you know, they probably gather and, you know, use some scientific evidence to figure out whether we should put this on pause or not. But I actually listened in on the live call of when these, you know, 110 doctors or something met to decide how do we go, um, you know, on making the proper label on this vaccine now? And so they had actually four propositions on screens. And one was like, do not administer this vaccine to anyone. It's unsafe. To all the way to the very subtle one where it's like, safe for all adults like 18 years and older. And it stops at that point. And so they had to pick and vote on which kind of label sh it should be. And this is Johnson & Johnson? Yeah. And so, well, this is not the company Johnson & Johnson voting. This is a symposium of doctors voting on it. Um, again, I don't know what the coalition is, but they decide on, you know, federally uh, whether, you know, something should go back. They're the ones who put the pause in the first place, from what I understand. And so they just voted on it. And, you know, there was, um, I think only out of 100 doctors, only, I want to say, 15 voting members or maybe 20 voting members. So they voted and then they, you know, stated their concerns and everything. But now it's passed with the least, uh, with the lowest, I guess, little label. It's not even a warning even. But it's back on market. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because some studies say that uh, in general, for example, vaccine is good for pregnant women. And then some studies came out also recently which say uh, they have some adverse negative effects. And so we're basically faced, first of all, we've hit a wall. So that's number one thing that I wanted to highlight. We are now at a point where vaccination stagnated and is going down rapidly. And so Biden came out and he's, uh, you know, urging the public to vaccinate. It used to be, you remember, it used to be donuts, weed, gift cards, all sorts of incentives. Now Biden says that there's a tax credit for businesses to give paid leave if somebody's, you know, going to go get vaccinated and then actually cover their recovery period. So that's what's going on uh, with COVID in the U.S. Any, any of this concern you so far? I definitely think it's interesting that vaccines are slowing down. And I think it's because of increased hesitancy towards the efficacy of these vaccines. So people are now questioning because first the J&J &J blood clotting. Now, just in recent news, the Pfizer is announcing a third vaccine that's, that's going to be needed. A lot, of, a lot of things that are rotating and coming about. So people are just now questioning all of these things. I don't see it as an issue necessarily because it's just indicates to me that everyone who wanted the vaccine went and got it. And so it's supposed to be voluntary, right? It's time to open up. Again, it just the eligibility just opened up for all adults uh, on Monday. So maybe there's going to be, you know, a bit of uptick. If anything, I expected it to skyrocket, right? Because now every adult has right. the opportunity to do it, but it seems like it's slowing down. So Here's an interesting bit of audio from... Uh, Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, so about 15 months ago, she was sued by Republicans about her extensive and overreaching lockdown emergency order. So the Supreme Court actually struck down those orders, ruling in favor of Republicans. So it's been a while now. She can't really impose a lockdown like she did before. Here's an interesting bit from her um, on Meet the Press on NBC News. And I'm working with a smaller set of tools at my disposal, and that's why we really do need and, and appreciate the additional help that we're getting from the federal government. All right. I mean, it, you said smaller set of tools. So the bottom line is, if you thought you could do more, you would, because we know your health, a lot of the hospital systems in Michigan are like, you know, we really wish there were a more official pause in activities. It does sound like you're saying, my hands are tied. 
Well, at the end of the day, this is going to come down to whether or not everyone does their part. Uh, that's the most important thing. This variant, the B117 variant, is what is growing so quickly here in Michigan. All right. And so she goes on to explain, you know, the situation and how she's dealing with it. She also says that they're dealing, you know, they're actually breaking records in the way they're trying to squash the huge surge that recently, you know, took over Michigan. But the interesting part that I, you know, picked out from this interview is that she says, well, or he says, you know, he's like, it looks like your hands are tied. I think that government's hands should be tied at this point in relation to measures. Like, it's a good thing that, you know, look at what she says, you know, as a result that my hands are tied, I hope that people will do their part. You know, and that's precisely why I think people ought to be trusted to make their own decisions in relation to their health. If masks protect them, let the one who needs wear them. If vaccine is the remedy for some, then let it be so for them alone. If someone is at higher risk, maybe let's work together to ensure that these people have the support system they need. And especially that we're still learning about the virus. So, again, I see one of the headlines for this week. Researchers at the University of Oxford are looking for 64 healthy people between ages and 18 and 30 who have recovered from COVID-19 in a new of a, a first-of-its-kind study. The volunteers will be reinfected with the original strain of coronavirus first identified in Wuhan, China, under controlled quarantine conditions for 17 days. So if you're interested, they, they're looking for volunteers. Well, now moving on from, you know, from our local lens to a world perspective quickly, uh, the State Department has adjusted its advisory for travelers, uh, putting 80% of countries worldwide under a level four which is a do not travel warning. So India and Brazil uh, continue to suffer from the recent huge spike in cases and deaths. I don't know if you've seen, well, now you've seen the chart, right? It, it you know, the, the, the article that I pulled this from called it a an, an, uh, COVID tsunami. I mean, the chart is literally off the charts. Yeah, they had to like expand the scale three times to even fit it on from, you know, you have the peak numbers from like last October. I guess the biggest question is why? Because right now they're facing the fastest pace of spreading infections, the highest daily increase in coronavirus cases. They're obviously, I mean, they're a huge country, second populated in the world, 1.4 billion people there. Some people say they didn't pause any of their festivals or religious celebrations. That might have uh, caused it. They were also the largest producer of the vaccine, um, you know, on that side of the world. And they were exporting a lot of it until this hit. Of course, they also have hotter, more humid climate, I guess, and possibly less sanitation. But they're experiencing, you know, they're, they're having a really tough time right now. Uh, Japan is going into a third state of emergency lockdown. The prime minister said despite the emergency being short term, it asked the restaurants to close and requests in-depth cooperation, for which I sincerely apologize. So that's what the prime minister said in the Friday conference. It's interesting because the Olympics are three months away. And so they're now implementing, I guess, this really swift um, step to curb whatever rise they're seeing. Going back to the India chart, it's just amazing how, how crazy the numbers have spiked. But still, if we looked at, at the death to um, infection ratio, it's still a 0.006%. Other like funny news is Australia um, in Perth, to be exact, enforced a three-day lockdown after they found one COVID case from a traveler, from a tourist that like in a hotel, basically, he was quarantining, but they found that he had COVID. So... Three-day lockdown. One case, three-day lockdown. Yep. Mm. Well, it is what it is, and we take it day by day. And while the world around us is still under pressure, we don't have to be. So let's stay informed, vigilant, and let's also remember that life goes on, and we've already been robbed of a whole year by this virus. Don't let another one slip by. The second trend in topic this week is uh, the rising temperatures around the world. So the big news this week is Biden hosted essentially the highest-powered Zoom call ever. I'm talking about the Earth Day Climate Summit, uh, where they are concerned with the rising temperatures and rising sea levels. And this all stems from the 1980s, where the scientists from Exxon, an oil company, began raising concerns of the effect of carbon emissions on the environment. And since, the debate uh, has ballooned into a huge global discussion. Now in 2021, um, Biden hosts this huge Zoom call with a bunch of world leaders and they're all pledging, well, not all, but some are pledging, uh, do their fair share of bettering the climate. As a result, Biden showed off, and without any mention of Congress or how he's going to get it done, pledged to cut the emissions in half, a very ambitious goal. Earlier this week, the White House unveiled 
this non-binding goal under the Paris Agreement that calls for cutting U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030, and that's relative to 2005 levels. Now, historically, conservatives have been rejecting the idea of global warming and any mitigations to reverse it. However, in terms of climate policies, we've always been split on the issue. So maybe we're not adding you know, that much to the global warming you know, in raising the temperature, but say reducing emissions and pollution would be beneficial for environment and the result for all of us. So what are your views on climate change? Well, in terms of uh, climate change policy, you know, the climate is changing, but how are they or we planning to mitigate it? So one of the main points to cut CO2 emissions and what was mentioned is to move towards electric cars. I'm sure all of us have heard the story that to make an electric car and even an electric battery costs a lot more resources than that of a gas car. Also, where does the energy come from to charge these electric cars? Um, Just one aspect of cutting back greenhouse gas emissions that might not actually cut them back that much. Just a good point to think about. So when we're implementing these policies, are they actually going to work? Climate change is a loaded topic and there's a lot to unpack um, because there's so many different... Uh, there's so many different things that have been kind of clumped together and then it's been sort of hijacked by uh, by a lot of political elites. So uh, a lot of the kids that are going to college and studying environmental science, they kind of get funneled into um, into the political scene, whether it's on a government level or a local organization level, um, because that's where the money is. There's a lot of data to support uh, the idea that, yes, the climate is changing, the earth will warm up and cool down uh, it kind of swings back and forth, but it's a question of do we agree on how, what needs to be done about it and what the real issues are. Is there immediate public health hazards or is it more of something like, oh, we don't want to, like we'd rather try to engineer the environment around us rather than try to adapt ourselves. I'll take an example, uh, if if we can take the time, the a colony of uh, people from Scandinavia living in what is now Greenland. So there was a colony that survived for about 700 years and then they basically died out. They didn't want to change their way of life. They wanted to be dairy farmers. They wanted to uh, basically have everything the same way they had in Europe. But the Eskimo or Inuit people that were living there at the same time, they kind of survived through that um, miniature ice age, I guess you could say they had. So uh, that's an example for us. You know, that was they were around a lot longer than our country, you know, compared 250 years to 700 something. Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we have an effect on the environment. Our pollution, uh, the way we dispose of waste and and just the kind of chemicals that we produce nowadays will have an effect on where we live. I guess the problem is maybe our arrogance at looking at the question and seeing, hey, from our, you know, microscopic view of our own little timeline that we have in front of us, we feel like we could greatly alter this because we have science at our disposal, right? And so that's where the argument goes is that, uh, do you really think that we can change, you know, I guess in big way, because it's not like we're trying to actually solve the problem. We're we're trying to just add a little more. We're not trying to reduce the bad. We're trying to add more good. We're trying to create like a counterbalance. Right. And so in in that sense, it's like the question is how effective is it? And like Paul mentioned, what's the cost and will the effect actually, because we haven't, we've yet to see a great effect of our efforts, you know, uh, reflected in the actual world. And so, anyways, on this summit, uh, Canada, Japan, Brazil, these uh, countries, among others, uh, actually committed to some, you know, pretty ambitious goals by 2050. And then uh, countries like China, Russia, India, they either just remained with the same old pledge or said something that was really non-binding and who's going to, you know, even uh, keep them accountable for it. And so the problem with this, with what Biden said, the, the, the goal is too ambitious. The research firm Energy Innovation estimated that without any new emission cutting policies, the U.S. is on track to reduce emissions by 12% by 2030 relative to 2005. So think about it, 12% versus the 50-52 that Biden is setting as a new goal. It's twice as ambitious as the previous target of 26 to 28% cut that was uh, as a you know, goal set during the Obama administration. And that was by 2025. We're not too far away from that. Um, of course, the big part of the sales pitch is the jobs in addition to, you know, saving the world. Speaking of saving the world, uh, here's Representative Katie Porter from California asking Greta Thunberg, uh, an 18-year-old outspoken uh, climate activist. Greta, um, you know, she testified before Congress on Thursday and you know, where she, again, condemned the global corporations and continuing the path of destruction, pointing out how there's very little accountability and so on. 
But on the lighter note, uh, this highlight might deserve some attention. Take a listen to this. I just wanted to ask you one question. My, I have a nine-year-old daughter. I have three kids. And I told my nine-year-old daughter that I was going to be speaking with you. And I said, what do you think about the climate change? Climate change. And she said, the earth is on fire and we're all going to die soon. And I asked her how that made her feel. And she said it made her feel angry. What should I tell my daughter and how should I help her and the youngest generation bear the emotional toll of the actions that we're taking, fossil fuel companies are taking to destroy our planet? Well, it's, it, thank you for your question. Um, that's a big, big question. And I know that there are many young people who feel angry and sad because of all the things that some people are are doing to to this planet and to to our futures and to to the most affected people already today, and that's very understandable. It would be strange if we didn't feel that way because then we wouldn't have any empathy. Um, so I would, but of course there is still much hope. And if we choose to take action, then we can do this. And there, are, I mean, there's unlimited things that we can do. And if we choose to act together, there are no limits to what we can accomplish. Anyways, I want to pause it there. She goes on, you know, uh, a few seconds, maybe like 20 seconds more, uh, talking about, you know, how there's something that we can do and we should begin with ourselves, basically, and, and be proactive in a sense. I have a nine-year-old daughter. Uh, you know, she's seen Greta speak before. She doesn't really have those kind of concerns. Her concerns were uh, not so much about global warming. The other day she told me, Dad, why why do Democrats support abortions if they need extra voters? That would have been a lot of voters for them. So that's that's the kind of you know concern <laughs> that she has. But it, it it's kind of sad that today, you know, the political issues now travel not only adults, but now apparently even preteens. All right, moving on to the third topic uh, for this week, uh, racial and police tensions in the U.S. Well, those who have been set up to serve and protect have been under fire uh, this past few days, sparked by, well, not just past few days, probably for the past few months, sparked by the selective shootings picked up by BLM activists. The protests continued around the country, uh, specifically in anticipation of the verdict for Chauvin's case. That's been ongoing for a few weeks now. And also in regards to the shootings of Dante Wright and Adam Toledo. So in Minneapolis, everyone was preparing for the worst. Um, they were awaiting this you know, jury's verdict. The city was already boarded up. Businesses closed down. School was on remote um, f- you know, for some period of time. Uh, they say over 23 mar- million Americans tuned into the mainstream channels. Massive audience for daytime news event. Uh, and since we knew 90 minutes before the verdict announcement that it's going to be announced, people had the time and the chance to tune in. So the result, the jury found Chauvin guilty on all counts he faced. Second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Uh, each murder charge carries a recommended 12.5 year sentence for a person with no criminal history. And according to Minnesota sentencing, gui- sentencing guidelines, while the manslaughter would be expected to result in four-year term. So now he's being held in solitary confinement. And uh, before I get to your comments, let me play two clips that might affect the case going forward. Now, over the next few months, there will be more you know, procedural meetings where the sentencing will happen and multiple chances for appeal will come up. But here's something that came up during trial that taints the jury's decision. So here's a um, soundbite that I took out from uh, representative uh, of... California, Democratic representative of California, Maxine Waters. Uh, and uh, th- this is her comments in regards to the Chauvin's case prior to the jury's verdict. We're looking for a guilty verdict. If nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we mean business. Okay, so if you had a hard time hearing, she has a mask over her face. Uh, there's a crowd of angry mob behind her. Uh, who's upset, and she's saying, we're looking for a guilty verdict. And specifically, uh, incites this confrontational response from, you know, those around. And and again, this is all done days before the verdict. Here are the comments then made by the uh, lawyer 
Chauvin's lawyer, and the judge. Now that we have U.S. representatives uh, threatening acts of, of, uh, of violence in relation to the specific case, uh, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions. So what are your thoughts on, on the jury verdict? Um, so I definitely think the judge um, hit the nail on the head there where um, he, he even thinks that there should be an appeal um, because personally, I don't think Chauvin, this is just my opinion, that I don't think he should have been guilty on all three counts. I definitely think there should have been a lot more deliberation, but in honesty, you could understand the jury's mind in, in that situation. They're all from Minneapolis where these riots, where people are, are gathering outside of the courthouse, ready to riot, ready to protest if they don't get the verdict that they want, like Maxine Waters was saying. So this is definitely a tough situation for them to be in, knowing that their house might be burned down, knowing that they may get blackmailed. And so in that situation, everyone would consider just giving a guilty verdict, knowing that it would possibly go for an appeal. So mm -hmm. the thing that is scary, though, in this situation is the mob rule. Like in, in, in this case, they came up and in a sense, Maxine Waters, like everyone was, I, and I truly think that the jury was scared of the, of the mob and what they could do. And I feel like in all of the other cases, we could see this as well, where the mob is dictating what's going to happen. And it's in a sense, the driving factor in, in all of these things. I don't think that 10 hours of deliberation for a three week trial says anything except that they were intimidated into giving this verdict, which is which is really sad because this was really a landmark case, I think. This is a real turning point in our justice system uh, and in our society. These 12 people, uh, these jurors, they had once-in-a-lifetime chance to do something really courageous. But I understand, you know, they had the choice between living, you know, two seconds as heroes or a lifetime as cowards. It's been it's been so monumental, this whole case, that it's by now, every, you know, it has touched almost every person. And so... I don't think there was anybody by this time who hasn't made up their mind about Chauvin. I don't think there's any details that could have swayed you one way or another. But then you add on top of that the mounting pressure from, you know, enormous pressure from from uh, the society. You have this. 25 minutes before Chauvin's verdict was announced, another story added to the, you know, fuel to the fire. It was the tragic yet evidentially justified fatal police shooting of the 16-year-old African-American girl who was about to stab another girl seconds after police arrived on scene. The police officer reacted within seconds after realizing who's the threat at the scene and who needs to be protected. And, you know, in very close proximity, he did not hesitate and acted as we would expect an officer to react. He stayed cool under pressure. He, he did his duty to serve, protect, and eliminate threats to save lives. And considering the scrutiny that police are facing, uh, officials uh, with the Columbus Division of Police immediately released the footage of the shooting uh, that same night, uh, just hours after it happened. And of course, the outrage from the rioters, the media, the BLM followed. Uh, this is getting to a point where it you know, not only are we trying to break down the public trust towards the force that stands, like I mentioned in the last episode, like the major enforcer and keeper of social order in society, but now we're also uplifting and vindicating criminals. So I'd like to hear your take on the story of Micaiah Bryant. I think the outrage on this is extremely misguided. I mean, if you watch the video, I know that several news outlets tried to edit it so that you couldn't see the knife she was wielding. But basically, the cop shows up uh, and, and he had to shoot her like nine seconds into... 
into the altercation, I guess, because, you know, she was charging this other girl with a pretty good knife, like good sized knife. I think he says like, get on the ground, get on the ground. And then, you know, obviously they're ignoring it because they're just going at it. And so he, he shoots her. But I, um, I was going to share a video that I just uploaded to our media file. If you guys want to take a listen, it's a TikTok video, but it's someone that's having an encounter with the police. And he's like, oh, you want to shoot me? Like, uh, well, take a listen. Oh, y'all gonna kill me like Makai Bryant? Are you gonna stab somebody like her? So basically, the person who I'm assuming is black, he's, he's filming it, and he's like, are you gonna kill me like Makai Bryant? Because there's like three cops talking mm-hmm. to him, and, and then one of the police officers responds with like, are you gonna stab someone like her? And then and it, there's like the reaction face of the guy like, oh. I'm just mind blown that in all of these cases, in the Chauvin trial, in, in this case, and in some of the... Uh, cases that we've heard earlier of um, the corporations being influenced by the mob. So it seems like the mob is running this country. And that's just really fascinating to me. And the media and celebrities, you know, they play into the whole mob mentality by, I guess, adding oil to the fire, if you will. And one of them was um, LeBron James, a basketball player who posted the picture of the police officer. And uh, what was it? Say, you're next. And then it was like a ticking timer. Now there's been, you know, a lot of uh, backlash that or criticism that he faced uh, over the past few days, and you can look up all of that. I'm just going to say that, you know, it's not just white people who could be racist, right? Like, this is a, this is an example of where we're st- starting to be blind to the actual racism. So, you know, conservatives have been mentioning this uh, black-on-black crime rates, right, as a, as a counter-argument, I guess, to the idea that, hey, you're not focusing on the right, uh, you're not focusing on, on what really matters. You know, I looked at the, at the numbers, and one of the interesting, I guess, if nugget that I pulled out for myself, so it's one thing to hear, you know, conservatives talk about black-on-black crime rates, and then the left media saying white-on-white crime is not that far away. When you look at the data and adjust it for the, actually, the population, what the percentage of African-Americans of the total U.S. population, and the rate at which they are likely to kill one of their own race uh, is much higher. It's actually 4.6 times higher than uh, white folks, right? And so also the police shootings that happen, you know, are said to be predominantly, you know, uh, or disproportionately affects the black community. Well, it's also because the arrests are much higher, Again, adjusted for the their twelve percent of you know U.S. population are African American. Adjusted for their population, they're seeing you know twice as much arrests, and it's not because they're you know being targeted, but because they're actually committing crimes, and thus they are more likely to be in a police encounter, and hence the you know police shootings that we see. Criminals get the justice they deserve, and it's not because of race; it's because of their involvement in a, you know one type one crime or another. And so we're seeing everything flipped upside down. It's a sad time, you know, for the next generation to grow up. And, and in, 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 uh, in one way, many will grow up being misled. And yet there is also an opportunity to raise a generation that is alert and pays attention to the divisions and uses common sense. Uh, meaning it sees a criminal as a criminal and sees the police force as a force that deters and in dire cases eliminates criminals. That used to be common sense. Here's a phrase I heard this week. Parents ought to teach their kids actual history, real science, and critical thinking. And I think it's said that we have to add adjectives like actual and real to such words as science and history. It really speaks of the time we live in where common sense is not so common anymore. Welcome to the lightning round where we go through our headlines from the cutting room floor and, uh, and present them to you in short snippets. Raul Castro will step down as the head of Cuba's Communist Party. So we see a lot of this in Cuba's political sphere where the veterans of the armed revolution in the 50s are slowly leaving office as the country faces its worst economic crisis since 1990. 11 people have died and 98 have been injured after a train has derailed in Egypt. And in more African news, Chad's president, Idris Deby, dies after clashes with rebels. So... He was 68 years old and spent more than three decades in power. This guy was really the opposite of an armchair general. Uh, he died basically on the, on the battlefield, and he and his troops are some of the most battle-hardened in the world. The Jewish uh, supremacist group Levaha has been marching through the city, uh, the city of Jerusalem, and uh, they were met by Palestinian counteractivists. Then the police got involved, 
Uh, this all took place on Friday, and more than 100 people were injured. So the next story um, is related to COVID-19. Um, Connecticut House approves bill to end religious exemptions for vaccines. The Democratic-controlled House of Representatives in Connecticut has passed a bill aimed at ending the state's religious exemption from immunization requirements for schools, starting with the 2022-23 school year. According to the Associated Press, the bill passed a 90-53 to vote early Tuesday morning, following more than 16 hours of debate and now heads to the state senate so now we see that families that are religious um and they don't want their kids to take the vaccine and that was an exemption previously now in a sense the government is forcing if this bill passes to be vaccinated in order to get back to school in the world of politics uh, there were quite a few stories one of them uh, cuomo faces inquiry over the use of state resources for the pandemic book that he wrote remember that book on how he handled the covid uh, so well yeah now they're investigating um, the whole idea of how he used uh, the resources, I guess, and aides in his office to help him write the book. He's still being investigated, by the way, uh, for separate investigations into his behavior in office. In Georgia, a group of faith leaders called for Home Depot to be boycotted over the Georgia election law. So as you remember, last week we talked about the 100 uh, companies that came together and spoke against Georgia election laws. Well, now apparently faith leaders are calling to boycott Home Depot because they didn't put their name on that list. North Dakota Governor Dog Burgum vetoed a bill this week that would have banned transgender girls from participating in girls sports. So he's now added to the list of, uh, I guess, recent trend in vetoing transgender bills. Biden is eyeing tax rate as high as 43.4 percent in his next economic package. So basically almost doubling the capital gain gains tax rate for the wealthy individuals. And well, he wants to pay, you know, for a raft of social spending that addresses long longstanding inequality, according to people familiar with the proposal. And finally, Caitlyn Jenner, the Olympic gold medalist uh, with the reality show Family, announced Friday that... Uh, Quote, she will run for governor of California. The I guess the breaking news of this is that Caitlyn Jenner will run as a Republican. And this is all as Newsom, News, uh, Governor Newsom is facing recall. So the next headline has to do with world news. Uh, China guilty of egregious violations of religious freedom. Uh, USCIRF tells Congress. So religious freedom worsened in China in 2020 with government officials demolishing church buildings, imprisoning Christians and using surveillance technologies to track religious minorities, according to an annual report by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. So basically prosecuting anyone who refuses to join the state sanctioned three self patriotic movement, which is a sense anyone who supports the Communist Party. But if these violations are not addressed uh, by China, this might be enough for the U.S. officials to not um, be present at the Winter Olympics, which I thought was interesting. So this is kind of something that U.S. at least realizes that this is not okay. And then in national news, so the U.S. West prepares for possible first water shortage declaration. So the man-made lakes that store water supplying millions of people in the U.S. West and Mexico are projected to shrink to historic lows in the coming months, dropping to levels that could trigger the federal government's first ever official shortage um, in states like Arizona and Nevada. But reading into the article, it seems like there's nothing really to worry about because Nevada, the agency that in Nevada, the agency that supplies water to most of the state has constructed straws um, to draw water from further down in Lake Mead um, when its levels fall. So it also created a credit system where it can bank recycled water back into the reservoir without having it count towards its allocation. So they found workarounds, but this is definitely interesting that we, we have our first ever water shortage. In the military news, a uh, story that presents a case that's never happened before. Apparently, the former head of Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio is headed to court-martial on sexual assault charge. Uh, it may be the first time in modern history that an Air Force general has faced such a trial. This comes, uh, I guess, as another story of uh, prominent national leaders facing sexual assault charges. So the Biden administration is considering a rule to cut nicotine in cigarettes according to the Wall Street Journal. Of course, they're extremely addictive, and uh, apparently the rhetoric is that if we cut nicotine levels in these cigarettes, people will definitely not just smoke more cigarettes to get the same high, but they will be moved to 
quit entirely. So in entertainment news, an alternative to Hollywood studios, Angel Studios raises millions to create family-friendly content. So the same media entrepreneurs who created VidAngel, Drybar Company, and the hit series The Chosen are launching a crowdfunded movie studio that will produce enriching and inspired content that they say Hollywood lacks. So um, they're building a film studio um, that helps creators and viewers create high-quality TV and film without having to answer to Hollywood gatekeepers. So it's interesting. I'd like to see if they can handle this um, competing against Hollywood, um, but definitely rooting for them. In the world of tech news, uh, I'm just going to read a bunch of headlines in no particular order. First one comes as Tesla, well, two people died in the Tesla crash with no one at the wheel, apparently. They still don't know if autopilot was on or not. Uh, One of the identified was 59-year-old, while the other one was 69-year-old. It's apparent that I think the driver was in the back of the car and the passenger was in the front seat. It's a tragic incident, but they're investigating and looking into it. You know, as new technology comes on scene and we trust more and more of our lives to it, right? This is one of those examples where did technology fail? Did people fail? Uh, It's under investigation. Um, Other tech news, Venmo adds now a cryptocurrency uh, where you could buy and sell Bitcoin and other currencies now within the Venmo app because I guess that's the current hype. Facebook shows off a mind-reading technology. It hopes to be used one day with smart glasses so you can pretend that you're typing on a table and it will actually pick up this, you know, using the combination of a watch and glasses and projections and all of that. It's not mind-reading, but it kind of almost on the edge of mind-reading. Also, they're testing out a new prayer post feature. So because of, well, 2020 and the tough year in the past, so they feel like this feature will have a place and um, essentially you can click and say that you're praying and well, that's a prayer post amazon is rolling out a pay by palm technology at some whole foods grocery stores uh, near its headquarters to make paying quicker and more convenient so basically you just come over scan the palm of the hand and it connects it to a credit card or an amazon account and finally um the apple spring loaded event happened this last tuesday this past Tuesday, uh, where Apple announced a few new things, a new podcast app, a new IMAX in color. So I don't know if you've seen them. They have like a line of now colored IMAX, a purple iPhone, AirTags, and a new Apple TV and an iPad. SpaceX has sent four astronauts to the International Space Station. This is actually pretty timely because Russia this week has announced that they will be leaving said space station and forming their own. This mission by SpaceX was officially using a recycled Falcon 9 rocket. So remember we talked about Ingenuity drone uh, being made, well, the legs for the Ingenuity drone being made not too far away from my backyard, actually, you know, get a corner to my backyard. Well, they just had their, the drone just had its first test flight on Mars this week. Uh, Now, they didn't record video footage from what I understand, just a black and white picture of hovering above but this was this is monumental because this is the first time we fly something you know on another planet this is they called it the Wright brothers moment on mars so if on uh on earth here our blades on the helicopter spin about 400 times 400 revolutions per minute on mars to overcome its thin atmosphere it spins 2500 revolutions per minute crazy and to finish off this lightning round we have our engineer dennis is going to chime in on a story that's been really making headlines in the sports community oh uh, yeah so i would like to talk about the super league so as a football fan myself more soccer as we call it here in the u.s there's been there's been this uh, new league that was uh promoted or announced by florentino perez he's a uh, president of real madrid and there's been a lot of backlash towards this league because it's supposedly con- uh, been told that it's a closed league and only top teams are allowed to be in. And there's a lot of backlash to it because there's no competition. It's just the same teams are going to be playing over and over again. This few, like 15 teams are going to be playing over and over again. And people are complaining that it's just a way for these uh, owners of these clubs to make more money off of these games to help their club instead of benefiting, benefiting the, the actual sport. And Florentino Perez has gotten a lot of backlash towards this. And he's trying to say that he's trying to save football. But everyone is saying that he's not. He's just trying to take more money. And in this article that I was reading, he says uh, the Super League is not for the rich, but it's to save football. And he says if we don't make a new league that will bring these bigger teams to play against each other, he says that football will die by 2024. And he's saying that 16-year-olds to 24-year-olds are apparently losing interest 
in in this sport, which I disagree with because I watch the sport all the time. I know a lot of people who still have interest in it. And they, they like how everything is going. But this guy is saying that the way things are playing, it's not. he's saying it's not interesting to watch big teams play against small teams. But I don't believe that because it's, it's really interesting when a small team plays against a bigger team because you never know what the outcome is. You the small team could just come out of nowhere and just beat this big team, and they could uh, they could come out of relegation. They could get promoted into the new division. It, there's a lot of passion towards this sport, and it makes it very interesting to watch. And to make a new league just only big teams playing against each other, I don't really think that's a good idea. And it's not really. I don't think it's going to help anybody. Yeah, it seems like a lot of hullabaloo over nothing, to me. I mean, as a business owner, that guy has the prerogative to make any league he wants. And as long as people watch it and bring in revenue, that's what the whole idea of televised sport is about. You can buy tickets, you can watch the games. The idea of a Super League is that there are teams that have a lot of brand identity and they have a lot of prestige in the in the soccer community. Yeah, but you got so you got basically uh, you got the business side. This guy speaking, you know, Dennis. Dennis speaking from a from a perspective of a spectator, somebody who enjoys the game. He's doing it for his himself, benefit himself, not anyone else. It's not benefiting the players. Don't want to do this. They didn't agree on it. They they agreed to play for the club itself, not to agree to join this new league that will take stuff away from them. That's supposedly, according to UEFA, that that could get them banned from domestic games, Champions League, and they can't. The players won't even have the opportunity to play for their national teams and. They didn't sign up for that. They signed up to play for the club and be able to have all these other games that they could play, not just play for this one league. Thanks for the coverage, Dennis. Really hit it out of the park with that one. Before we begin our two final stories, I just want to have a quick disclaimer. I can't say with any finality that what we're going to discuss addresses every fringe case and that our perspective is going to be end-all, be-all. But I do hope that we can bring attention to some points that at least spark discussion. My sympathies go out to people that are put in these situations where they have to consider these kind of options for themselves or for close ones. The issue at hand is euthanasia laws or assisted suicide laws. There's a slight difference. We can get into it a little bit later. But these laws have been passed to varying degrees in many other countries. And the first was the Netherlands in 2002. And it's expanded from there. A couple of episodes ago, we touched on a story that talked about Spain passing euthanasia laws. And now it seems like the government of Chile is following suit, assuming that it passes through their Senate. So whenever I hear about this kind of legislation, my first instinct is to consider what is not only the stated purpose, which is almost always overtly virtuous, kind of like a Save the Puppies or a Patriot Act or something like that, but to consider what are the unintended consequences. The stated purpose of this law is that if someone is suffering from an incurable disease and suffers unbearable ailments, they could start a petition with their doctor and in the end you would get a lethal injection. It would be cleaner, more controlled dying environment on your own terms. You basically can orchestrate your ideal death uh, with the help of your medical provider. So this article highlights a case of a 53-year-old woman who's living in Chile. She's been living with metastatic breast cancer and is tired of the pain, worsening conditions. Uh, internal bleeding, hemorrhaging, and she has no other desire than to die. And so here is this new law that would allow her to die exactly the way she wants. And she should be allowed to, right? It's her body. It's her choice. At least that's how many proponents of the law would argue. So there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, let's just call it what it is. Assisted or not, it's a suicide. According to data from 2018, uh, this is from the United States. So suicide is the second most frequent cause of death for anyone under the age of 34. This is a staggering statistic. I bring this up because, in my opinion, this is a law that will be abused to legitimize and justify people that are having suicidal thoughts. This is what those who say, my body, my choice, would have you ignore. The decision to kill yourself is never entirely private. You can't say it's just about my body or just about the control I have over my own life. It's devastating for the people that are in your life, even if you don't think so. We have a slippery slope when it comes to these kind of really subjective terms and conditions like, uh, you know, what is a low quality of life? What is an unendurable pain? Like if if we can take a second, just I want to hear you guys' opinions. Like, I don't think there's a there's a case for euthanasia at all. I mean, suffering or, or, or not, right? Like we are not given the right to take away our own life or life of another human being. And so it stops there. Again, we can talk about passive 
euthanasia as it's been you know referred to so there is a distinction i guess between passive and active but for active one or, or assisted suicide which is slightly different in assisted suicide you have a physician who provides the means of death uh, to the patient, such as prescription, and then the patient administers to themselves. That would be assisted suicide, saying, I want to die, give me the drugs, I'll take them. Uh, and then the euthanasia, the term as we use it, the active one, is when a physician would be the one given the lethal injection. In both cases, morally wrong. Now, now in terms of suffering, right, I, again, with full compassion towards the people who suffer, on this earth, we should alleviate the pain as much as possible. We should definitely care for these people. Um, you know, we are now blessed to have the amount of research and science, you know, available for us to discover or to, to design all these kind of drugs that ease, I guess, the suffering. And we should focus on that, you know, care. Yeah, if we can piggyback off that point just for... Uh uh, really quickly. So Proverbs 31, six says that to uh, give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. So it goes into what you're saying. It's like, yeah, we, we, we want to alleviate suffering as much as we want, but it should incapacitate someone from, uh, from rational thinking or um, their ability to remain a positive influence in the lives of others. So I definitely think this is a, this law would be a slippery slope um, because it's kind of like the case with abortion, where the first thing that happened was they um, allowed abortion at the first trimester. Then after a little while, it became the second trimester. Now some people even think post-birth abortion is should be a thing. So in this case, is like you pass this one law, but like how are you going to enforce it? Um, and where is it going to go from there is my question. Because what if the doctor is corrupt? What if you pay a doctor and say, hey, I just want to die can you help me die and you pay them off and and if you know if euthanasia is legalized there's likelihood that insurance companies could pressure the doctors you know to say okay we, we don't want to you know can you withhold the life-saving treatment for the dying patient because it's beneficial to them so there's a likelihood that their pressure might might exist i do think that these terms and conditions in the law are really subjective so for instance some people would say that uh, you know, for example, where you lose motor ability in your limbs or you're having a bout with cancer and you're experiencing severe chronic pain. You know, some people would say that's unendurable pain. Uh, some people would say unendurable pain is PTSD from a traumatic event. So we have an example with uh, a teenage girl from the Netherlands that committed uh, basically what we would call passive euthanasia because of a, because of PTSD she was experiencing when she was a, a younger teen. It could expand into degradation from Alzheimer's. And, you know, some could say that living as a member of an oppressed race is unendurable suffering with no end in sight, right? So it fits the definition, basically, however you want to paint it. And you, and you guys are right in that there's, there's so much room for abuse in this and that doctors are corrupt. Uh, if you leave up a lot of these definitions to the government, to popular opinion, uh, to maybe people that practice eugenics, uh, like we've seen in, in recent history. But one thing that can't be overstated is that I believe one of the highest ideals is the sanctity of human life. You know, we're created in God's image, and to take up arms against this purpose is a blasphemous act. Your response to suffering could be a blessing to someone else to an extent that you may never know if you take this option. You know, and if you deny yourself and you deny others the chance to have profound experiences that come as a person approaches death, um, and the, the reckoning that comes with that. So we've alluded to passive euthanasia a little bit, and I've heard pastors argue that passive euthanasia, for example, like you pull the plug on life support, uh, people that say do not resuscitate, um, things like that, that it can actually be a moral thing. And what are you guys' thoughts? Well, in terms of euthanasia, right, uh, in general, the, the general term euthanasia, you know, a Christian definition of it would be the intentional killing of a person as part of his or her medical treatment. There should be no doubt about that, right? You, you another a physician uh, takes on a job of killing that person. Now, when we come to a passive euthanasia, you know, if a person has been unconscious for extremely long periods of time, or their brain activity, you know, has ceased, there is a case uh, when a person is in a vegetative state where you not necessarily kill them, but by disconnecting them from life support, you're allowing the injuries or illness that a patient has. Uh, you know, to bring about their death naturally. Church, 
at large does not consider this morally wrong. In terms of passive euthanasia, um, I think it should be up to the person that this is being done to. So like if someone um, says that they do not want to be resuscitated, there could be a reason for that. Um, I know a lot of older people, like if they're in their 70s or 75, 80, they have a DNR because if they ever get to a state where their lungs um, don't work anymore and someone tries to resuscitate them, while they may bring them back to life, they are going to break all of their ribs. They're going to cause them difficult living situations in the future. So in a sense, they're going to be in even more pain um, and that might be even harder for them to do than actually dying. So um, another point is like if someone knows they're going to die anyway, like if someone who is has cancer and is terminally ill and knows they have six months to live. So if they go and take chemo, um, then they might extend their life for a little bit, but they're going to be living in pain. They're going to be nauseous. It's just going to be a really tough situation for them. So if they decide not to take that treatment, then I think that is up to them. It's not like they're killing themselves prematurely. It's I think of it in a sense as if your head hurts and you choose not to take an ibuprofen to um, cure your headache, you shouldn't be you, you should be allowed to do that. That's up to you. Obviously, it's a lot. It's it's a, a, a big difference in the situation, but I, I see it as that comparison. And um, yeah, th- those are my thoughts. Yeah, I definitely see there being a balance in between. Are you neglecting your body or are you um, essentially like giving control unto God to let um, let him intervene and let nature run its course, essentially? But when you look at kind of a secular view of the the sanctity of life, we see a lot of double standards. So either people will take advantage of it and, um, and say like, oh, well, if, if life is so precious, how come animals are dying with more dignity than humans, you know, alluding to dogs being put down and stuff. Um, But on the other side, they could discount it as something like uh, you're being overly sentimental, basically. So, uh, there's like there's this tragic belief that some lives are worth more than others. So, like, oh, you're being overly sentimental. Like, obviously, like his life sucks or, or, you know, something like that. And we place so much value on certain lives, sometimes at the expense of other lives. Like we, we put so much value on pre-existing human lives and prolonging those at the cost of, for example, newborn baby blood. Um, so there's a lot of backwards understanding uh, about the value of life. And to quote Animal Farm, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. So I'd like to take this time out to congratulate you, the listener, um, for making it to the last story of our show. Give yourself a pat on the back. Go grab a coffee. You definitely deserved it. That's right. With more international news, we have an update on recent headlines and the imprisonment of Navalny, or the anti-Putin, as some like to call him. So the 44-year-old Navalny, who last year survived a nerve agent attack, Um, that Russian authorities, of course, denied carrying out, was thin and weak after starving himself for three weeks. And as his allies say, he risked kidney failure or cardiac arrest. So because of this whole situation, many protests broke out with about seven to 9,000 people in St. Petersburg being on the streets and 10 to 15,000 people in Moscow um, protesting on the streets. Also, police rounded up more than 1,700 protesters on Wednesday as Russians and dozens of cities took part of these rallies. So basically, they get captured and the next day they get released with the court summons. So for me, the headlines were misleading a bit. You know, it said that Navalny launched his hunger strike over what he said was the refusal of the prison holding him to provide him with proper treatment from leg and back pain. Um, at first, when I heard this story, I thought it was because they, were, they weren't feeding him or it was because the guards were doing something. But it, it was basically a personal hunger strike that he took on, which he has now ended and has been sent out um, to a hospital where he is now replenishing and supposedly feeling better. This story wouldn't have come as a shock if it wasn't the prison staff withholding food for him, for me personally, because Navalny claims Putin has it out for him. You know, Navalny claimed to be nerve-gassed as part of an assassination attempt. Navalny then was put in prison because he violated the probation, which he denied was legitimate. There are also claims that as part of efforts to squelch the protests, um, the authorities have targeted Navalny's associates and activists across the country. Um, so basically his friends. His brother Oleg, top ally Lyubov Sobol, and several others were put under house arrest for two months and faced criminal charges violating coronavirus restrictions. I didn't mean to downplay what happened to Navalny or take a side in this case. 
The reason I said claimed so many times is because the state prison service has said Navalny's condition is satisfactory throughout his complaints of back pain and other problems. And Putin's administration, of course, said that everything Navalny said previously was false. So there's two sides to the situation. Um, There's definitely a lot of conflict. So what comments do you have on this situation? Well, Navalny is a, a, a unique example of somebody, you know, in modern Russia standing up to the regime that's been, you know, established over the past 20 years. And so he definitely has a West-leaning or European, I guess, leaning views, agenda, if you will. And because of that, you know, a lot of people say that he's supported or backed by U.S. or, you know, by the West. The fact that he's trying to put some reforms, you know, forward in the country. He has been targeted by Putin specifically, right? And so right now they're actually uh, talking about specifically in relation to Navalny, they they want to make the whole group, I guess, or, you know, these activist networks as extremists. They want to label them as extremists, including even outlawing their T-shirts that, that have Navalny on them. And, and that's a move essentially to trying to squash down this political movement that's been really hard for Putin to squish over the past uh, four or five years that Navalny has been active. Now, Navalny has a huge YouTube following. He's been putting out a bunch of documentaries with his team um, on the corruption of the oligarchs of Russia. And because of that, gained immense popularity in Russia. And he even wanted to run for president, but they dug up into his past, found some embezzlement charges, and that barred him essentially from uh, being an actual candidate for the president. So um, I think this is definitely a political situation. This is not so much about Navalny's real crimes uh, or Navalny's, you know, I don't know, not showing up for court after he was poisoned and whatnot. This is more of a political game. The question is, who's involved in this game? Is it just Navalny in Russia or is it West and Russia? There's a lot of Russian media and Putin himself talking about how, oh, Navalny is just desperate for attention. So he's... Uh, he's making up all these allegations against the the state, against you know how he's being mistreated and all that stuff, which I think is kind of laughable, honestly. If you're if you're preaching the agenda that you are just the most popular guy and the only person that that shows any resistance to you is just full of it, like yeah, you can be a very popular leader, you can have a lot of power, but there's always going to be someone that disagrees with your policy. There's always going to be someone that uh, that pushes back against you. I remember when, uh, I think it was Navalny himself that was basically like prank called somebody that was working with the FSB and was talking about, I was like, hey, we just want to follow up on the mission, like to, uh, to you know, poison Navalny and all that stuff. And the guy was like totally bought into it. He was like, oh, yeah, like, what do you want to know? Kind of uh, basically just admitted over the phone that like that operation was a thing and that he was directly involved. And so there's no denying how much Navalny has done to expose corruption in Russia. And that's why he has such a great following. I like the comment that he made about Putin where he said, he says, we all remember Alexander the Liberator and Yaroslav the Wise. Well, now we'll have Vladimir the Underpants Poisoner. So other nations also had something to chime in, right? So the United States has warned Russia it will face consequences if Navalny dies in prison um, during his hunger strike. Other countries like Canada and and the EU, uh, they disapprove and call for immediate release when he was imprisoned, and some even call for sanctions. So U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called for Navalny's immediate and unconditional release, while German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas characterized it as a bitter blow against fundamental freedoms and the rule of law in Russia. Russia has dismissed U.S. and uh, the EU's official criticism as meddling in domestic affairs and said that Navalny's current situation in a procedural matter for the court but it's not an issue for other governments to chime in. So it seems like other countries are very passionate about this. But do you think that's fair that they're demanding for Putin to act one way or another in this situation? Um, what if Russia started threatening sanctions on the U.S. and started uh, telling Biden to act in a certain way with the Derek Chauvin trial? So in this sense, I kind of agree with Putin that other countries shouldn't be dictating or forcing them to think one way or another um, and how they should handle their protests from within, especially with the U.S. having so many of their own protests. If other countries do listen to the U.S. and they do listen to, um, say, the EU and Putin says, OK, I'm releasing him because you guys asked me to. So wouldn't it lead to the strongest country then being able to dictate every single law in other countries as well? How someone lives, how someone speaks, how someone worships. 
because they find it egregious, like against their own beliefs. So what what are your thoughts of like other countries meddling in this or saying their opinions? I don't know if all those situations are comparable. Like, should countries be involved in internal politics of other countries, period? In the case of Derek Chauvin and the and the police and, you know, violence against black people, supposedly. I don't know if you can compare that. We can talk back and forth about whether or not they were trying to assassinate him because we know that uh, if they do end up killing Navalny, then he'll just turn into a martyr. There's more extreme cases where it's like, do we get involved in China's uh, China's concentration camps of Uyghur Muslims, for example? Like, I was oh, going to bring up North Korea. Like, they probably <laughs> violate a bunch of people who wanted to, you know, start a new movement or put new reforms, and now they're gone. They're dead or they're in concentration camps. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's situations that are way too petty, obviously, but there's also situations that are more than serious. But at the same time, this is a political question rather than, say, a question of race. Again, question of race might be also politically motivated. But in this case, it's like what it shows is we have high expectations for Russia, I guess, as the West. And that's what they're trying to really play here is that, hey, you're, you're not China. You're not North Korea, are you? So as with any situation, I think in this case, there are a lot of differing opinions and similar to the Derek Chauvin trial where one side claims that it was right um, alongside with the jury. Other people disagreed. I feel like in the Navalny case, there's the same thing where Putin claims he's right. Navalny claims he's right. Who's on the right side? You know, I think it ultimately depends for us. Um, We pick a side based on whether you think Putin is a good president or not. I think this story provides a way for us to get emotional and angry in these situations. Listening to the story, I'd like to ask that we not get angry. But if you feel strongly about one side, then pray for this situation. If you think Putin is acting wrongly, pray for him. If you think Navalny is correct and you want him to be released and there to be justice, then pray for this situation. I think us getting angry 5,000 miles away won't really achieve anything. I think we should give it all to God and make sure that our emotions aren't tied down to a particular side, but we look at it objectively and ultimately give it to God. Well, that's all for the stories for this week. As people around us continue searching for the truth, they often pass by the very thing they're looking for. Sometimes it's because of ignorance, but mostly intentionally. That's why here at LifeRing, we will continue to encourage you to stand up for the truth in an age where so little of it remains objective. And as always, we'd like to remind you that there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate truth, the way, and the life. He died for the sins of the world so that everyone who comes to him would know the truth. We encourage you to seek him if you haven't already. Thank you for listening to Life Ring and we'll see you next week.